Last week I began this series through the book of Galatians called No Other Gospel. And I began by sort of asserting and sort of trying to get into your mind just how important this study would be. And the short answer is, it's super important. It's very important. I think actually, as we said last time, and I'll repeat it again, that if you get Galatians wrong, you will likely get the rest of the Christian life wrong. And that might seem like a bold statement. It might seem like a statement that is just coming from someone who wants you to listen. And maybe that's true. But also, I think it's true about this word. And it has nothing to do with what I'm going to say. Everything that is important about Galatians is important because God inspired it to be there. One of my mentors and pastor friends, his name is Dr. Blaylock from the church that we were ministering in for a long time in Jupiter, Florida. He one time said about this particular book, and I think it's so true, that, quote, Galatians is the signpost at the fork in the road between truth and error. So you come to a road that leads to a fork in the road where you can go this way or that way, left or right, and you're left with a decision, so to speak. And sometimes the decision of which path to take is not obviously clear, but in this case it is. Choose one way and you will be led into error of all kinds. A kind of error that will lead you perhaps to disregard your faith entirely. Led to another road, you will be led into all truth. And it's the truth of God himself. Another historian, his name is R.C.H. Lenski. He said this about Galatians, quote, Galatians is a citadel, a very Gibraltar against any attack on the heart of the gospel. This letter is the grand arsenal which is stocked with weapons that assure victory in the ceaseless battle for the central truths of the gospel. And that's strong language, but the point is the same. Galatians and all of the contents that make up this little book make it perhaps one of the most important to study and to understand. And that's not just the opinion of pastors or historians or theologians. That's the opinion of Paul too. Why else? Actually, just flip with me to the last chapter, chapter number six. Why else do you think Paul would write this letter with his own hand? He says that in chapter 6, look at verse 11. Notice what he says. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Galatians is unique, as we noticed last time, in terms of its introduction. How Paul spends time explaining his authority as an apostle. How Paul spends time detailing and articulating and expressing what exactly the gospel is. But also it's unique because Paul wrote it himself. He's not, he's not dictating this letter to some transcriber and he's trying to copy down all of Paul's arguments. Actually, Paul is writing this with his own hand, dipping the quill into the ink and writing. And actually, I like how he says he's writing with what large letters he has. You can think about Galatians as an email you get that's written in all caps. <laughs> What does that mean? Either they forgot to turn the caps lock off or they are almost screaming at you. (laughs) And essentially Galatians is just that. It's an apostle, a preacher of God writing forceful language. Why? Why is he writing about this? Because the truth of the gospel of God is on the line. It's in the balance so to speak. That's how important this letter is. 
And he doesn't want anyone to miss his point. Such as wise we noticed last time. He begins this letter by just ripping the band-aid off right away. As he begins talking about what's going on. As he says in verse number 6. I am astonished. I'm stunned. I'm dumbfounded. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And turning to, as he says, a different gospel. And this different gospel is also known as no gospel at all. And it was threatening to undo all that Paul had just finished doing in those same churches that make up the churches of Galatia. This letter, I I believe, was written to these churches known as Southern Galatian churches, so to speak, roughly in the spring of 48 AD, which is a date to remember. File that away. It was written, perhaps, and I believe, after Paul and Barnabas had just finished uh, spending months on their very first missionary journey, uh, ministering the gospel to those same churches. You could read all about it in Acts chapter 13 and 14. They're sent off from the church of Antioch, and they go into all of these southern Galatian cities, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and others, and they're preaching the gospel. And they have great resistance, but they also have great success at the same time. And they report back to the brothers at Antioch. And Galatians is a response to the false gospel that was coming on the heels of Paul's preaching tour, so to speak. He had been preaching Christ to these churches. And almost immediately there was this group, as we introduced to you last time, this group of guys known as the Judaizers who were troubling these churches with their own gospel. As Paul has just detailed, a different gospel, which of course is shorthand for no gospel at all. It's not good news. They were adding To what Jesus had done. They were saying you have to do something else on top of what Jesus had done. And they were disturbing the churches. They were confusing them to no end. That's what precipitates this letter. These false teachers were undoing or threatening to undo what Paul had just spent months ministering to them with. Discipling them in the truths of the gospel. And just so you're aware, and Paul makes it aware to us, he's not responding with this letter because his reputation's on the line. He's not writing Galatians because he's worried that you know, his reputation is going to fall by the wayside in light of what these false teachers are doing. No, he's writing it because the gospel is on the line. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. Paul wasn't concerned whether or not he had the approval of man. Notice verse 10. He states that explicitly. For am I now seeking The approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Am I doing this for men's applause and to get accolades and acclaim from men? Is that why I'm preaching how I'm preaching? No, he's not concerned about that. He didn't write this letter to save face among his peers. He wrote it because the gospel isn't up for debate, and it's not up for revision, and it's not up for modification. Why? Because, as Paul says, this gospel is not mine, and it's not even Peter's. It's no one one man's gospel. It comes from God himself, as he says in the next verse, verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers... 
You who make up the churches of Galatia, I want you to know this, don't miss this, that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, verse 4, that he delivered himself up to death to deliver us from sin, that very good news that was preached by me, verse 11, is not man's gospel. It doesn't come from a man, it doesn't come from his mind. Actually, as he says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He wasn't making up this news. It's not man-made. The gospel, you see, this great and glorious news, as we saw last time, concerning how God has promised to rescue this entire world that's full of sinners, rescue those sinners from their sin by he himself taking on their sin. That is a message that is always revealed to the likes of you and me. In the Old Testament, the same, the same gospel is present in the Old Testament, and it's revealed through all kinds of events of providence and promise that come from God the Father. In the New Testament, this same gospel is revealed through the person and the work of God and the Son. But all the way through this entire Bible and all the way through our entire lives, we can know for certain that the gospel is always revealed through God's word and through God's Holy Spirit. And it's always this beautiful news that it is always about Jesus and God the Father working to establish this beautiful news and hope of redemption in him. But it's also a message that only comes from him as well. No one can make this up. And Paul reiterates this fact as he relays his story. That's why he relays his testimony. Notice verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul knows his story is a familiar one as it probably was in the church at this day. As it probably is to you as well. Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. He is living proof. He is a a living testimony of the very fact that the gospel cannot and should not and, and may never be modified by anyone. He was before he was a, a preacher of Jesus, you might remember. He was a fierce opponent of Jesus and anyone who followed in his footsteps. Go with me to Acts chapter number 8. Just So you can see this. And actually you might want to keep a finger in Acts. Especially these chapters as we'll be referencing them quite often. Acts chapter 8. Look at verse number 3. This is immediately following the brutal execution of Stephen. Often referred to as the first martyr of the church. And notice as Saul was approving of his execution. Notice what occurs in verse number 3. As it says, but Saul was ravaging The church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is Paul. The same guy who is here in Galatians preaching to this church and seeking to enrich them in the truths of the gospel. Before he met Jesus, he was breathing out threats and murders against the church, as it says in Acts chapter 9. 
wreaking havoc on anyone and everyone who would assent to belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul took a disturbing delight in violently laying to waste the church of God. He was essentially a first century terrorist. So much so that he had made it his lot in life not only to promote, as he says, the traditions of his fathers, to, to, to promote all these words of men that he had come to believe, but also to annihilate, to wipe out anyone who would believe otherwise. And I think that's an important thing to note, as he says in verse number 14, back in our text of Galatians 1, that he says he was advancing in Judaism, as he says, so, much, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. When Paul is caught in his former life of Judaism, it's important, I think, to note that he is inundated by the words and the doctrines and the beliefs of man. The traditions of my fathers is basically shorthand for all those beliefs and codes of the Pharisees that had been passed down for generations upon generations. These are man's words, man's beliefs taught and received by men that yet were elevated to equal standing with God's words. Jesus calls the Pharisees out on that in Matthew chapter 15. And essentially it's revealing to us what is occurring. That man and, and all of his, his, his so-called wisdom and all of his so-called knowledge and intellect. He had raised his wisdom and knowledge and words to the level of God's authority. And you see, just to jump ahead in the history of Paul, you can see the difference Here Paul is not writing Galatians from a standpoint of being indoctrinated by man's words. He's saying, I have a word from the Father. I have a word from God. He had been given a completely new word to live by. But in his former life, as he was breathing out all these threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus... Even as he was orchestrating that, God was orchestrating something different. God was orchestrating a a beautiful way in order to snatch Paul out. Out of that life of darkness and rebellion. Back in Acts, you look at chapter number 9. Look at the first couple verses. But Saul... Also known as Paul, still breathing threats and threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, also known as Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul heads out, he gets legal authority, authorization, a stamp of approval to not only imprison and incarcerate, but also to execute anyone he seems he deems necessary uh, of those who belong to, quote unquote, the way, those who follow Jesus. And with those papers in hand, he sets off towards Damascus to continue in this zealous trip of violence that he has been committing. He doesn't see it as that. He sees it as upholding truth. But suddenly as he goes, Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead, appears right in front of him. Look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Here, and just in an amazing moment of providence and grace, Jesus, the risen Jesus himself, appears right in front of Paul, interrupting his plans, interrupting this, this travel route that he has toward Damascus. And not only does he appear in front of him, but he calls him to himself. He gives him a calling. Back in Galatians. Notice how Paul frames this in Galatians chapter number 1. Look at verse number 15. Look at what he says. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God interrupts Paul's plans and gives him a purpose and gives him a calling, a calling to fulfill. He was to be a preacher to the Gentiles, one who would proclaim Jesus to any and every soul who would listen. A beautiful portrait of grace, a beautiful portrait of what Paul would come to be known for. Preaching forgiveness of sins to those who are lost and weary and in need. An uncanny display of grace as Paul, this persecutor, has now been transformed into Paul, the preacher. And notice, it's all of God. Notice, remember when we were talking about that back in the earlier verses. If you go to verse 3 of chapter 1 of Galatians, down through verse 5, he explains the gospel. And who is not mentioned? The works or the efforts of man. And here Paul is a living, breathing testimony to the fact that God does all of the work in order to deliver people from sin. And when they believe, they are delivered on the spot. Paul is a living, breathing testimony to the fact that God gets all of the credit for this beautiful thing called the gospel. And notice as he continues, as he's making this argument, as he's going to say in verse number 16 and 17, that he didn't get any consultation on this thing. Notice, he was pleased, he's referring to God, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Again, remember the point he's making. He's making the point and proving it by his own life and testimony that this gospel, this beautiful thing called deliverance from sin and free justification in Jesus is not something that man has made up in his own mind. It's not something that he has come up in his own imaginations. And he's saying again, I didn't make this thing up. I received it from a revelation of God. And then without consulting any authorities, without consulting any apostles... I was led into the Arabian desert where many believe he spent years with 
the Lord, communing with the Holy Spirit and with the Word, being made to understand the Word of God through the Spirit of God in order so that he might be able to declare the gospel of God. He's not meaning to say that the apostles weren't important or weren't necessary. He is asserting of the fact that he is an apostle of his own right. You know, history is dark on this season in Arabia that Paul mentions here. Nothing is known from that stint that he spends there, just that it happened. But I think it illustrates Paul's earlier point. Since again, as he said in verse 10, I'm not out for approval. I'm not out for men's applause. I'm not out for men's acclaim. I don't need their stamp of approval on what God has shown me. He has given me a gospel to preach. And I'm doing just that. If he was out for approval and accolades, he would have gone immediately into the most important place with the most prominent scene and made a scene of himself. But instead... He didn't care what men thought about him. He only cared about being faithful to this beloved truth called the gospel that God gave him to preach. This gospel that God revealed to him. So continuing his story, he has just here declared this wonderful, amazing truth about how God rescued him on the road to Damascus and called him into this wonderful ministry of preaching that same good news. And as he says, verse 18, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is, Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Again, what's he saying? He's iterating the fact that he hasn't been influenced or instructed in this good news by any human man. He's not getting mentored on this trip to Jerusalem. He's not getting advised. He's not getting counsel, so to speak. He's not visiting Jerusalem, the early church HQ, so to speak, in order to get a stamp of approval from the apostles for what he was already doing. He's going to Jerusalem To join the work of the church as one of their own. As, again, an apostle in his own right. Go with me back to Acts chapter 9. It lines up perfectly perfectly with what Luke records for us here in this chapter. Look at Acts chapter 9, look at verse 26. And when he, that is Saul or Paul, came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. This lines up exactly with what Paul says at the end of Galatians 1. Notice verse 21. Then I was in the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is also Tarsus. And I was still unknown in the person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said. 
He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And notice, and they glorified God because of me. Paul is a testament. He is a living testimony to what the gospel can do with no sort of intrusion of of man's works or man's philosophies or man's involvement. Those who are sinners and revealed to be so confess and repent and believe and they are brought into the family of God. And as he says, all of them glorified God because of me, because of what God has done in me and through me. It's a testimony of grace that Paul is here relaying. Again, relaying the fact that this gospel that he's preaching, but this gospel that he has also been blessed by himself is not his. It's not just Paul's gospel. It was revealed to him. Given to him by none other than God through Jesus. So again, going back to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's authority is from God. Paul's message is from God. He was an apostle of Christ. Called to preach nothing but Christ because of Christ himself. That's why Paul says later on in chapter 2 of verse 21 that it's no longer he who lives but Christ who lives in me. That's his whole life. The Judaizers, you see, these false brothers, these false teachers have sort of weaseled their way into the church and claimed that Paul was preaching a half-truth, a half-gospel. That he had sort of made up all of this talk about Jesus and the cross as being the only things necessary for faith and for godliness and for life at all. There's more to it than that. That Paul had made this up to sort of gain a crowd, to gain followers. And I imagine after Paul heard that, after he stopped laughing at that notion, that's why he told his story. I didn't make this up. To, to gain a following. I didn't want to become a quote unquote influencer. I'm not seeking the approval of man. Here's my story. Here's all the cards out on the table. This is what God has done. And I'm here only because God has called me to preach this thing. Oh, that's all about what God has done. To bring grace and peace to sinners who are in desperate need of both. He didn't make this up as again as he's iterating. And again I would even say that no human could ever conceive of something like this gospel of grace. About this scheme that God has put in to the fabric of creation. That those who are in desperate need of a redeemer. He would come and be that himself. As we announced last time, this gospel is a program designed by God. It is God's prerogative and purpose and person making it it happen. And Paul, as he has just iterated here, is a living testimony to that. It is God's doing. God gets all the credit. This gospel that I'm preaching, I'm not preaching to get approval. I'm preaching because it's my only lifeline. So you could say Paul's gospel was 
divinely sourced, so to speak. But also, as he proceeds to say in the next section, it was also historically sound, which is just illustrated by this other visit that he takes to Jerusalem. Notice what he says, chapter number 2. Then, after 14 years... So 14 years he was in the regions of Syria and Cilicia preaching the gospel. As he says, then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So he meets with these, these who, as he says, seemed influential, which is just a shorthand reference to Peter, James, and John, as we'll soon learn. And he takes along with him two individuals, Barnabas and Titus. And he goes to Jerusalem and he confers with these influential men to confer on the truths of the gospel. And again, it's important to make known that Paul is not backtracking what he has just argued for. The point that he's just made that this gospel hasn't been, uh, that he's received hasn't been given to him by any man. He's not going here to Jerusalem now to get the apostles' approval, so to speak. Nor is he looking for reassurance, so to speak. Actually, Paul is meeting with these apostles, Peter, James, and John here. I think in order to get all of his ducks in a row, so to speak, because of all of this noise, because of all of this false gospel that was being presented and preached by these Judaizing brothers, all of that noise was getting louder. The gospel was becoming distorted. So in order to clarify, in order to be uh, very clear with what the gospel is, he goes to Jerusalem and has this private conference with them. You can imagine this scene, uh, imagine this scene like, like in your favorite movies, where the good guys, they are made aware of the bad guys coming down the road. And so what do they do? They go to the weapons cabinet and they start loading up, getting locked and loaded for an coming conflict. That's sort of like what this scene is. Paul is going to his brothers in arms, his brothers in the gospel, and that are here rejoicing not only in his truth, but being resolved to live in light of that truth no matter what. And in this case, Paul's ammunition, if you will, isn't bullets or arrows. Paul's ammunition is the person known as Titus himself. Again, look at verse 2. I went up because of a revelation to Jerusalem. And set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's no accident. It's not just happenstance that Paul makes sure to bring Titus to this conference. He's bringing him to prove a point. If Paul and his life is, so to speak, exhibit A of the truth of the gospel, Paul, or Paul is saying here that Titus is exhibit B. He's a Gentile. 
He doesn't belong, so to speak, to the, fam- fam- the covenant family of God. Therefore, in order for him to be accepted, in order for him to uh, be associating with us, in order for him to be brought into the faith, the old tradition was what? That he would have to be circumcised like any other male that belongs to the people of God. Yeah, Paul here says what? Even Titus. My closest companion, other than Barnabas at that time, who was with me, he was not forced to do so. He was not forced to go along with that tradition, to go along with that right, to go along with that word. Why? Because of the truth of the gospel. You see, the only ones that were worried about whether or not Titus was circumcised or not, which is shorthand for whether or not he was following the laws of Moses to a T in order to sort of get into the faith. The only ones worried about that were these false brothers who were causing such a stink in the first place. You can imagine the scene. They come into this little conference and these, these false brothers, as he says, that were in there to just spy out our freedom. They had weaseled their way in. They were in this room and they were seeing us and they were sort of side-eyeing Titus. Look who he brought along. He brought along this Greek to be with all of these Jews who are very high-minded. We know the words of the Lord. They were making it known that they disapproved of this companion of Paul's since he wasn't following the laws of Moses. But no matter how much they sort of spat at Paul and spewed their words at Paul, Paul wasn't going to budge. As he says, verse 4, Yeah, because of false brothers who secretly, who secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us unto slavery, to them we did not yield. As he says, Even for a moment. Paul didn't even think twice about entertaining. Okay, yeah, I guess just to make them happy, just to get them off our backs. Okay, Titus, let's let's go do this thing. Or even he didn't give in to the fact of what they were preaching. That Titus wasn't a true convert until he did X, Y, and Z. That's what they were preaching. That's what they were saying. That Titus... Doesn't belong. He doesn't belong until he does this. You see, that's what is at stake here in this scene. And all throughout this letter. That besides putting your faith in Jesus, something else is necessary. Again, it's a message of Jesus plus Which, as Paul is here saying, puts everyone back into slavery. As he says, it puts them back into bondage. Which, of course, is contrary to the gospel that God has revealed through his son Jesus. Because that's the good news. Nothing, nothing is required of sinners before sinners believe. They don't have to do something with their lives. They don't have to make themselves into something. Just believe. 
God's grace and peace have come to us in the person and work of Jesus in an act of God's divine providence and power and promise that it's independent of us. We don't have to make anything of ourselves prior to receiving God's favor. Neither are we under the law's demands to stay in his favor after we believe. This gospel that we believe in is a gift from start to finish. It's grace all the way through and all the way down. And all the apostles agreed with Paul's stance. Notice verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Again, he's not being dismissive of the apostles. What is he saying? That the apostles agreed with the gospel that I was called to preach. On the contrary, he says, verse 7, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been trusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through mine, through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So you have this conference, this meeting where Paul is using Titus as an object lesson to the truth that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, period, because of Christ alone. And they embraced Paul as one of their own, as an apostle, just as they were. They recognized that Paul's gospel was theirs gospel, was really God's gospel. And what is God's gospel all about? What is the truth of the gospel that, was, that Paul was fighting to preserve? Why did he not budge when these who were uh, trying to influence him and trying to influence Titus? You got to do something else. You got you to make sure you're, you're keeping up all these little check boxes. Why did he not budge on that? Jump down to verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You think he's getting something across there? It's not works. Not yours at least. Nothing that you can do or you cannot do. Something, there's nothing that we can do or stop doing on our own to bring us into justification with God the Father. To bring us into a right standing with God. This truth of the gospel is the good news that every sinner, Jew or Gentile alike, it does not matter. Is saved by grace through faith in Christ. Period. That's the gospel. And Paul is saying, that's what I've been preaching. And when this gospel is implanted into your heart and soul and mind, it will bleed out from you and lead into all kinds of beautiful, good, holy works. But the point is, those things that follow on the footsteps of the word received by faith... They do not make you 
a part of the family of faith. The things that you do after the fact, they do not win God's favor. You and I are utterly powerless to put ourselves into a position to win God's favor, to make ourselves more favorable in His eyes, to make us more lovable, to make us more receiving of mercy, to make us more righteous. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, there is nothing that you or I can do to win our salvation, to merit it, or to maintain it. As Paul has here said, the law can't do it. It's powerless. Our best efforts can't do it. None of that counts in this beautiful work called justification by which God takes a sinner and declares him righteous as in a court of law. All because of what Jesus has done. You can't earn that. You can't work your way into that. It is only this good news that comes from God that is concerned with what God in Christ has already done. That's the only thing that ever brings grace and peace to sinners. And that's what Paul and the apostles were preaching. And I would say that Paul's not budging attitude, so to speak, ought to fill us with the same amount of resolve. That the gospel that we proclaim has nothing to do with what we have to do in order to make peace with God. Rather what? It is all about what Jesus has done. My friends, that beautiful truth of what Jesus declared on the cross. It is finished. All of your right standing with God. All of your peace with God was found in that declaration. When he died for your sins and for mine. And he said, it is finished. Your right standing with God was secured because of what he accomplished. And that's what is revealed to us through this beautiful thing called the gospel. This thing that God opens up to us. That we stand justified. Because Christ stood condemned. That's what we revel in. Every single Sunday when we come into this place called the church, what are we doing? We're rejoicing that this good news is true. It's not a rumor. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It's the truth of what God has done in Christ. One of my favorite Scottish theologians, his name is Horatius Bonner. He was active in the 1800s. He has a very famous brother named Andrew, but Horatius was very influential and of his own right. And he writes this beautiful passage that I was going to try and reword, but it wouldn't have come out as good. He says this, quote, The gospel places in our hands a pardon which no prayers or exertions of ours can make more free or more near. A pardon flowing directly from the finished propitiation of the cross. A pardon for the ungodly and the unworthy. A pardon which, while it glorifies him who pardons, brings immediate liberty and deliverance to the pardoned one. That's what we preach. You can't make the gospel more free than what it already is. It's free in Jesus and he holds it out to you and to me in his death and resurrection. And nor can we add something to it. You can't make what is free a little bit expensive or you ruin the gift. (laughs) See, that's what the Judaizers were doing. 
They were taking the free gift and saying, it's not free, it's just discounted price. It's not free anymore. It's just 99 cents. You can do that, right? You can do your part, right? You can do what you need to do to get yourself into God's favor. And Paul's like, you've ruined it. You've ruined the whole thing as soon as you add a little bit of a price from man onto what God has finished. It's like going to a restaurant and someone pays the check for you. And we're like, you don't have to do that. Don't, let me get the tip. And the guy's like, no, I've already paid the tip too. It's kind of frustrating, isn't it? We want to do something. We want to contribute something. And that's God. He's paid the whole bill. Tip and all. He's tipped every waitress in the whole place. He's paid everyone's bill. We can't do anything about it. As much as we might try, as soon as we try to do something about it, we're nullifying this thing called grace that God gives us through Christ. And he says, live in light of what I have done. Live in light of what I have accomplished. Your right standing is given to you. For every Paul and for every Titus, for every John Doe sinner. The gospel invites you to rest in what God has accomplished For Paul, that was his only lifeline. And for me, I'm standing before you here this morning saying, that's my only lifeline. There is no other message that we could ever declare to anyone and say, that's good news, other than this. Because that's the only way that any of us ever have life. And life abundantly. It's because of the free and unconditional gift that God has given through his son Jesus. There's no other gospel. There's no other good news than that. Let us pray.